Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with the CSI Opioids Investigative Team. CSI Opioids stands for Clinical Context of Suicide Following Opioid Transitions. It is a scientific study designed to closely examine suicides that have occurred after prescription opioid dose reductions have taken place in patients with long-term pain. And with us today are Dr. Stefan Cartez, affectionately known as Stefan, Principal Investigator, and Ms. April Hogg, the project coordinator. And with April that, Hogue. April Hogue. I apologize. And with that, I'd like to welcome them both. Hi. Hello. And yes, you can call me Stefan. Perfect. So let's begin before we delve into the details of the study itself, a more fundamental issue. Patient suicides or clinical complications following reduction or stoppage of opioid medications is a well-known problem. Why did you choose to study it? And why this particular study design? April, should I go? Or do you yeah, want to? Yeah, I'll let you take that one. Okay. <laughs> so um, first of all, one of the things that really became obvious to me as these suicides began to be reported is that the solution or the answer was always simplified. Like, oh, don't taper too fast and there won't be a suicide. Even if you go to the announcement for the Food and Drug Administration in 2019, it says... Suicide happens after rapid taper. And I think everybody started to entertain the assumption that all that's going on is that there's a short-term risk from a short-term mistake about how to taper opioid pain medicines. But I was pretty sure that wasn't true because we had also seen suicides that were happening a long time after taper. And there was a prior history of pain itself being associated with suicide, even without opioids in the picture. So I was really worried we were jumping to conclusions in an effort to make things seem like they were going to be easily fixed by just having doctors reduce doses slowly. Well, we didn't really ever understand what was going on with individuals. You did ask why we chose a study design like we chose. And what we chose is to investigate individual cases and to examine them one by one. And that's a big decision to do. It's very much like an autopsy that you do after someone dies. I was once a student pathologist and did 20 autopsies. And what I believe is that these large health system databases that show a risk uh, of suicide after prescription stoppage, they don't really tell us very much about what really happened. And unless you have some storyline of what was going on in a person's life, what were all the factors that might have contributed to their decision, we are not going to be able to prevent these tragedies. And that includes understanding things that are not necessarily related to opioids. How did the person feel about their social relationships? Did they feel like they had a place in society? Were they dislocated from their family or from other supports? How did healthcare happen? in those last six months? What were the nature of the conversations they had? Were they offered other forms of help? Were they offered a choice about whether to taper? None of these things are collected in the large statistical studies that hint that there's an association with suicide and opioid reduction. And I I felt we shouldn't skip to assume we know the answer without asking and investigating the individual cases. April? Yeah. um, I mean, I agree with everything he just said. I feel like 
the the data is there, but this kind of adds color and narrative to it, which is crucial. And yeah, I don't think it's about it. So let's delve on that a little bit more before we get into the study design. There are studies out there that discuss some correlation. There are more traditional statistics-driven models. What is this study showing that may be missed in the numbers themselves? I know you talked a lot about the autopsy, the storyline. Can you contrast data collection here relative to what would be seen in a more traditional study? April, do you want to dive in that one or should I? Um, I feel like maybe you should take that okay. one. <laughs> so traditional large database studies go to a health system. We did one in the Veterans Administration. Uh, there are others that come from Medicare and Medicaid. They can show whether a patient was assigned a diagnosis of depression or anxiety. Sometimes they can show what specific pain diagnosis they had, and they can show the pharmacy record, whether a prescription changed, went up and down. And maybe they'll show the race and ethnicity of the patient. And that's it. So if you're trying to understand a complex tragedy and that's all you have, you might be able to say, hey, uh, from a database, there's something going on where there's a reduction in opioid prescription and some very small number of people, it's not most people, but some small number seem to be an augmented risk of having a suicide or a mental health crisis or even overdose in the time after. And that's it. It's very limited that uh, that's all you can say. And, and so when you do an interview and review records, then all kinds of questions can be opened up. And I was trying to share with those, share those with you, but tell me about the history of the pain. Tell us about whether there were changes in pain care in the last few years. Tell us if this individual ever had ideas about suicide in their life before this event happened. Uh, tell us about family relationships or about faith relationships. If we really want to prevent a tragedy, we kind of need that. Interesting. Definitely. I'll add here that, you know, the, like Dr. Gertez was saying, or like Stefan was saying, um, the the data that we already have kind of shows us that that is happening but these qualitative interviews kind of give us a chance to get at the emotional aspects like stefan said and also a really big part of this that we'll get into later in these interviews is the pain care journey um and a lot of times the people we're speaking to are extremely they were extremely close with their loved one who passed away and a lot of them actually went to you know, appointments with them and things like that and saw firsthand the journey that they were going through with their pain care, um, receiving it versus not receiving it and how that all went played out. Um, and that is something that you could get from medical records, but it would take a very long time. And this way we're getting a more direct route at seeing, you know, what that pain care journey was like for them. Let's transition and take a look at the screening survey itself, which I'm going to share at this moment. And I want to perhaps go through the actual clinical study methodology to help the audience understand what they can expect should they decide to participate or refer an individual to participate in this study. So talk first about what is 
this screening survey? And when would a patient or a participant first encounter this? And we should acknowledge there's two versions or two ways to get to it, right? So you might get to it on the new, brand new screening website, which has just seven questions. And then if you answer those, it'll drive you forward to the thing that you're showing on the screen now. So just so no one's shocked, if they go to go.uab.edu slash CSI, they get a kind of glitzy green colored version of the first seven questions. Got it. And there's another website that it'll push you to that gives the detailed questions. And that's what you're showing. So people aren't surprised. April, you want to talk about this? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, And so the whole survey kind of starts out with some background information about the study. Um, Every page, of course, has crisis resources and that kind of information on it. And what we're trying to get from this survey is kind of a glimpse into what the interview would be like if someone did move forward and was deemed eligible. Um, So we would ask, you know, your name, your contact information, everything like that. And then we kind of get into the idea of the background of the decedent. Um, So we do ask for their name and where they resided at the time of their death. Um, We ask that person's opinion on the nature of their death. We ask about um, any, the person's knowledge at all about the opioid pain medication that this person might've been on um, and what changes took place with that medication if they were there. Um, And yeah, just some other general background information. There's room for explaining that you're uncertain. That's worth Mm -hmm. acknowledging. So what's interesting is the screening, the first few questions ask, one of them is something like, do you, do you believe that someone, you know, died by suicide after a reduction? I should show you this. Actually, you're showing on screen some very important things. You're showing the consent information. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should help people. You're showing consent information. This is required. The university wants information about a study, even a simple online survey, which is the first step to be seen by the person who's considering participating. So this reviews uh, the the fact that it is research, the fact that this part, this initial screener isn't, there's no compensation. It shows who's responsible. It shows who to complain to if you don't like how this survey is working. it explained that we have extremely strong confidentiality protections, both to federal letters, as well as the storage of this information is on a uh, deluxe, bona fide, 18 level certified server specifically for research. And yet we're still required to say that if someone were somehow to hack into this server, there's a loss of confidentiality that could occur. And that's shown as a risk there, right there on the form. Yeah. I don't want people to worry too much about that. This actually, the particular survey that houses this met several levels of federal certification, but Mm -hmm. we have to say we're required by the IRB to say risks and benefits and what our purposes are. And that's what they're going to see first. They'll have to scroll through that to get Mm -hmm. to the questions. So should we move to the questions? Yeah, I think so. Sure. April, you want to walk through the questions a little bit, the first few? Yeah, definitely. And I'm just kind of scrolling at a certain pace so that people listening, uh, can follow the step. So just go ahead and let me know when you'd like me to stop. Um, so you can stop here. So these are those pre-screener questions that Stefan was referring to. Um, we just kind of want to get a really quick snapshot into what your eligibility might be for the entire project. So do you believe someone close to you died by suicide? Um, and then of course we have to meet certain criteria. So you have to be 19 years or older 
um, and a resident of the United States. And the decedent also had to have been a citizen of the United States. You can keep and scrolling. Sometimes oh, people say, I, I want to comment on that first question. They'll sometimes say, okay. I believe they died by suicide. I think it was after a reduction, but I'm not 100% positive. And that first question is worded in a very open way to allow you to say yes, even if you're not 100% certain. And we explore the doubts and the uncertainties as you go deeper into this survey. Perfect. Should we continue? Yeah. 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 April, you can take over again. Okay. Um, and so then, like I said, we're just going to kind of get some contact information um, and a little bit of information about you. So this is, this initially wasn't in the survey, but our funder has asked for, you know, just very vague uh, rates about the people that are responding. So this just asks about race um, and ethnicity and gender, and you can keep going. Um, and I'll just say here, you can stop here. Um, like Stefan said, everything is very secure. Um, obviously, any data you give us is not going to be given to anyone else. We do ask for contact information so that we can reach out to you in the sense of, you know, if you take the survey and you're deemed eligible, we reach out. Likewise, if you're deemed ineligible, we also reach out to talk to people and we can talk more about that later. But um, so, yeah, you can keep scrolling. This is just some more contact info. And then um, you can stop here. Um, so then, yeah, we're asking demographic information about the decedent. Um, sorry, you can keep on scrolling. And I think it's important okay. that the audience understands that this is a very transparent, very well-designed study that is intended to protect the patient, protect those who are participating. And by showing this, we're not necessarily disclosing any information. Rather, we're sharing a de-identified version so that people can be aware of how they will be engaging in this study. Right, exactly. So if you went into the red cap screener survey, this is exactly how the questions would appear to you um, with the different options. So question 29 is that question Dr. Cortez was talking about. How confident are you that your loved one died by an intentional act of suicide? So we do this process that we call adjudication. Um, and so whenever we're talking about the specific aims of this funded study, we're currently just looking at people who lost a loved one um, who was a chronic pain patient to suicide at some point in time after their pain medications were reduced or stopped. And so the adjudication process for us currently looks like um, delving into the answers provided here. Um, and as Dr. Cortez said, later on, we will see some options for people to say, to have just open text responses. So you know, you do have to select an answer here from what's provided, but later on you can add some, add some light, add some extra information as much as you want uh, to tell us about this. Um, so you might have a, you may not be extremely confident that that's what that death was, but then maybe whenever you're talking about it later on in the text box, we're able to kind of confirm that, yeah, that's what that sounds like based on your response. And so then we can invite you to participate further in the study. Um, Understood. Do you want to add anything to that, Dr. Chaz? No, I, I, the key is that you don't have to be 100% confident to yeah. enter into this part of the survey, and you can explain where your doubts are. And then we, we review and decide who we can invite for the next phase of the study based on that. Okay, I just want to also add that the study is done at a VA institution, but those who are interested in participating do not have to be 
involved in the military services or a veteran. Is that correct? That is correct. And this, yeah, this part, is open to all people. And it's VA funded, but this actual survey itself is hosted on a server at the affiliated university. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to continue down. Yeah, please do. Um, and then we're asking some background information on just to see if you have a death certificate for your loved one and if there was or was not an online obituary about their death. Um, and then we do ask here, do you, did the decedent, uh, were they involved in the U.S. Armed Forces at all? Were they a veteran? Um, and so that is something that's of interest to us. As we said before, VA is the funder of the study. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're definitely interested in that, but it is absolutely open to all people. So, Understood. I'm going to continue down, scrolling down. I'm not sure if there's anything else that is relevant, but I think it's just important that we continue to show everybody anything Absolutely. in these questions. The opioid question. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So this is another big adjudication question for us is, um, do you have any thoughts on whether or not the medications were reduced or stopped um, or were they increased or changed in some other way? Um, and as you can see right above that, um, there's a portion where it just says free text. So like with the suicide question with the opioids, there are a few free text questions where you can type in everything that you want to say regarding that. You're not just held to that specific string of questions and answers. Some people have medicine that goes up and down, or the doctor takes away one, it adds another, and you're responding, and you don't know for sure if the total dose was higher or lower. You just know there was a big change. And this is the space to explain that. No, nice. Dose in terms of MMEs, correct? Yeah, right. So the doctor stops MS Contin and starts Tramadol, and it does. I know as a doctor that's likely to involve a dose reduction, but if you're dealing with the survey, you can just say, I don't know for sure what happened here, but it seemed like it was a reduction. I'm not really sure. It's okay. Yeah. I'll keep going. Um, so this is kind of the end of the survey. So if you did um, those pre-screener questions at the beginning, those do involve, you know, yes, you have to be 19 or older. You have to be a resident of the United States. If, you know, you're not 19 or older and you can't be a part of the survey right now, it's actually going to kick you to the very bottom where a thank you sign comes up and it's going to say, would you like to be contacted in the future about maybe similar studies? And so these are the questions that would appear at that time. And you can absolutely elect at any point in the survey um, to leave. Everything is voluntary completely. Perfect. Um, with that said, before I close this, any of the comments or points of reference you'd like to highlight in the screening survey? I don't believe so. I would just like to say, you know, for any individual who completes the survey, um, if you meet eligibility criteria, we are going to reach out to you, email you. But likewise, if you don't meet eligibility criteria, like I said before, um, we still are going to reach out to you, tell you thank you for your interest and time. Um, and, you know, if we can expand the aims of the project in the future to where you could become eligible and you're interested in that, we would absolutely be interested in reaching back out to you. So just say Perfect. That. So at this point, assuming that the participant has completed the screener survey and they qualify, you had mentioned that then there'll be a reach out. Can you describe what happens at that point? Absolutely. Um, so probably our research assistant, Mary Gilmore, will reach out to you. Um, and at that point in time, she'll reach out, she'll make sure you're interested, and then she'll send you this pretty detailed informed consent document. 
Um, and so as you saw in the beginning of the screener survey, there was just one question that said, would you like to participate? Yes or no. Um, and that's the consent for that screener survey, but only that survey. If you wanted to move forward and you were eligible, you would complete an interview, which we'll go over the guide in a second here. Um, and so we have a separate informed consent form for that process. Obviously, the interview is a lot more uh, emotionally taxing and everything, and we want people to be prepared for that. It also comes with a um, a Visa gift card, I believe, or a, just a gift card of sorts um, for completing that interview. And so that has to be explained and written out. Um, and then that informed consent form also includes some national and local to them crisis resources. Um, every participant who wants to move forward would review that, sign it, and send it back to us so we have it on record. Um, and then Mary would move forward with in scheduling the interview with you. Now, I'll be usually perfect. they last around 90 minutes. And I'll mention that consent can be done. It's usually done electronically through with an email that comes yes. from a service called DocuSign. But it is... We also mail them out on postal mail with a self, you know, with an addressed and stamped envelope that they can send back to us. Perfect. Before I open the interview guide, I'd just like a little more clarity on the various mediums by which patients can proceed with the interview itself. Are there online, phone, in-person formats? How can a participant engage in this interview process? So as of right now, we have to use what's whatever's approved by the VA for um, conducting and recording uh, research interviews. And right now that is Microsoft Teams. Um, so we have a very specific secure Teams meeting, I guess, link you would say. And that is sent to every participant along with a phone number if they don't want to join by, you know, their laptop or whatever they want to join just by telephone call, they can call into that secure line at the same time. Um, and so those are the two options right now. We don't have in-person just because it is a national, nationally open study. Um, but yeah, Microsoft Teams and phone call. Perfect. And with that, we'd like to open up the interview guide and share that with the audience. April, would you like to drive and kind of explain what the audience are looking at? Sure. Yeah, so um, you can see this little snippet at the top that says info from survey. Um, that's kind of for us as we open up the guide and are going through the survey. Um, it's good to have that information up there. So that's kind of snippets from that survey we just went over. Um, you know, we just want a reminder of where they where they live, what they said about certain key points of that survey as we're moving throughout the guide. Um, the intro is not recorded. This is just a little kind of suggested script that we want to make sure that we hit the high points of, you know, this is going to be recorded. Are you okay with that? Um, are you comfortable talking about your loved one's death today? We can reschedule if not. Um, I'm going to refer to your loved one with this name. Is that the appropriate name? Or would you like me to refer to them in some other way? Um, and just kind of that. So that's kind of this, this beginning script. And then if you scroll on down, we start with very broad questions. Um, so first of all, we kind of want to get to know the person we're talking to. So we start with, tell me about yourself. Um, and then we kind of go into this broad thing of, can you tell me about your loved one? Um, and so the interview guide is very much a, um, it's truly just a guide to kind of help push the conversation along. Um, a lot of times in these first two questions, we get answers to a lot of the questions below already. Um, maybe they'll tell us about 
doctors one, two, and three, and how the pain care journey went for their loved one. Maybe they'll go ahead and tell us about their loved one's uh, background and family situation here, things like that. Um, and then we get into, you know, again, some demographic questions. Some of these are kind of repeats from the survey, but we want to be very sure that we have the correct information for this. Um, okay. I would add there a little bit broader in the sense that the model for understanding the suicide that we use assumes that there's things at the individual level, like their life, their economic status, their family status, things at the social level, like where they live, their friendships, their communities, things at the health system level, and then things at the regional level, like maybe they're in a rural area. So there are a meaningful number of additional survey type questions about the life and living circumstances of the person who died, where they employed uh, were they disabled? Did they receive federal benefits? There's some kind of nuts and bolts questions at all those levels, along with some open-ended questions about what happened. Absolutely. Are there any times or opportunities for the participant to perhaps say that they're not comfortable answering a given question or perhaps defer to answering the question at a later time? Absolutely. Um, we do check-ins throughout the entire interview, just in case. Um, while I haven't noticed a pattern of discomfort with any one particular question, we have had a few people that needed to just kind of take a break in the middle. Um, and then, of course, we lay the groundwork in the beginning there by saying, you know, you're welcome to skip any question. You're welcome to pause, reschedule, or outright stop this interview at any time. So we make sure to remind folks that, you know, they're in the driver's seat here. We're not going to push them forward if they do not want to go. So. Understood. I want to spend a little more time on these questions because I think that those are uh, very important and kind of come at the heart of the issue. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what happens at this point of the interview, how the questions are facilitated, and how things are documented? Right. And so uh, throughout the process that we use whenever we do these interviews um, is there's one interviewer and one participant, but there's also one note taker. Um, and so the Stefan and I and two other uh, team members completed uh, certification through the American Association of Suicidology. Um, and so two of us are always on each interview. Um, the note taker is silent, but they're there taking notes throughout. Uh, and, you know, if they need to say anything to the interviewer, they have a secure chat line where they can do that to suggest questions if they want to do follow ups. Um, but. At this point, we're doing the recording with the Teams, Microsoft Teams, um, and then we have a secure contract to get those transcribed. And so that is how we're having data collection is being done. Note taking is happening like throughout the process, but detailed, you know, precise transcriptions are also being done after the fact. Um, with these questions in particular, um, if, yeah, I was going to say, we asked kind of broad questions in the beginning. Can you tell me mm -hmm. about your loved one? Um, and so if these didn't come out in that, we just circle back around to make sure we get that information. And for people who are only listening to this, these are the suicide questions we're showing on screen, yes. the most sensitive ones. And, you know, usually I would say at this point, I'd like to ask you really about the suicide itself. Are you comfortable with that? And then, yeah. you, you know, I think the first one is about the date of death and where they died. Uh, the second, in your opinion, why do you think that he or she took 
their own life and what was the method. So this is this is serious. This is heavy in a way. Yeah. Uh, there are, we ask about what they think about the method, why it might have been chosen, and then we ask this open ended question. A lot of people have thought, oh, you're you're just trying to show that opioid reduction always leads to suicide. But there's this question, which is, do you think his or her suicide was related to a specific problem or event? That's an open-ended question. And it allows someone to say, well, actually, yeah, the medicines are being changed, but this other thing happened as well. And we're really trying to keep that lens as wide aperture as possible to all the things that play a role, not just, oh gosh, there was a change in medicines. Yeah. Stefan, I want to circle back to a point you had mentioned earlier about uncertainty and not being 100% confident, if you will, on certain questions that are being asked. Uh, is that okay at this stage if the participant may not have the full answer or complete confidence in an answer? I'll answer and I'll see what April thinks as well. I would say absolutely, and that there is no one person who has the full and complete answer for this kind of tragedy. The idea is that after we collect detailed reports across, hopefully, over 100 people, we will look for common themes across all of those reports and important differences. And we'll look for lessons that can be learned to help improve healthcare. But that doesn't mean that every reporter or every person who participates is being asked to be in the mind of a person who took their own life and know for sure exactly what's going on. It's always an imperfect window. April, how do you think yeah. about that? I completely agree. Um, I think that it's, if if you're feeling like you don't want to do this because you're not positive of everything, please move forward and do it anyway, because no one can be certain. And we just, you know, proxy interviews are exactly as Stefan just described. We just want to get your opinions and see what you know. Yeah. It's all valuable. Should I go ahead and scroll down further? This issue of whether people shared information about their potential to die by suicide is really interesting. A lot of the time they don't. And that's more often the case so far that they haven't told others. Um, one of the things we also make a point of saying in these interviews is that um, we don't want the person we're interviewing to inadvertently derive the impression that they were supposed to do something. There's no assumption of guilt. And we make a point of saying that in the course of the interview. Uh, so when you're asked about whether they gave a signal or not, this there was already a statement earlier, which said, you know, there's nothing about this that's going to take the view that anybody really knows what somebody else is going to do. Certainly. And what you're seeing as you scroll down are now questions on every domain of life to the extent we can get through them. And very often people have answered them already, but this can include substance use, substances other than the prescribed substance. They can include mental health, pain care. Uh, I think you're going to come across as you scroll down questions on disability, financial status, faith status, uh, who they were living with. Those things all come up because they might turn out to be important and I should say the Absolutely. the outline of the questions here, although we wrote these in the end ourselves, we took a lot from the literature and from a model used by the Veterans Administration when they do follow-up of suicide of a veteran with someone they're already serving. So if 
there has been a family member who lost a veteran and they're involved with the VA's bereavement service program, they have that option of having an interview. And we took their guide and then adapted it and changed it to meet the purpose of our study. And that's why these questions are, you know, uh, written the way they are. There's probably more here than we ever fully get through, but we get through most of them. Yes. Yeah. Nice. I'm just uh, continuing to scroll so that the audience can take a look at the questions that are being asked. I know you mentioned um, things related to disability and whatnot. Uh, is there a particular section that you want to highlight or should I continue to scroll down so the audience can continue to see the questions? We're in a section on emotions, concentration, thinking. These are all hints of potential distress. They could be mental illness, but they also could just be mental distress that isn't tied to a mental illness. But those are important to realize that we look for storylines of whether that distress is uh, available, partly because I've read medical records of some people who had suicide attempts where some healthcare providers noticed distress and others didn't. So we want to learn if the family member or friend found that. Now in the section on substance use, as you had mentioned. You need to scroll on through health. Yeah. Oh, and yes, we're coming up on uh, social environment. And mm -hmm. I know, like Stefan said, we pulled in a lot of different resources to kind of create and finalize this guide, including um, we have a panel of consultants who we pay to provide uh, feedback to us on this project and especially on this interview guide. Uh, and one of those being Thomas Joyner kind of helped us bring in some questions about thwarted belongingness and uh, perceived bur burdensomeness, which I believe are in this section. Yeah, those are two elements that come up in what he calls the interpersonal theory of suicide, which is that suicide in part, in part relates to your sense of belonging. Um, and the we have two little sections here about veterans. And so if the decedent happened to have been a veteran, we would ask these questions. And in cases where they weren't, these would just be skipped. Certainly. And we kind of end with some a callback to the survey, um, because if we can move forward and get medical records for this decedent, we would like to do so. Um, and so here in this question, we would say you did or did not say that you had you know, legal authority to request those. Is that still true? And then we move forward accordingly. Um, and then we also ask him some really broad questions. We want to any at the end of any interview, you kind of want to say, is there anything that I missed or anything else you want to talk about? Um, but the last two questions are these very broad kind of, what are your thoughts on this as a social problem? Um, do you have feedback for us? And that, I felt like those have been very interesting so far, because as you can tell, this is an emotionally burdensome interview to do for sure. And so people by the end are kind of, they're spent, yeah. um, but we've gotten some really good feedback on those. Nice. I want to um, perhaps touch on that emotional element if you guys don't mind. But before I transition, is there anything in the interview guide that you'd like to touch back up on or uh, discuss in further detail? Yeah, for people looking at the screen, you can actually see that the interviewer and the note taker attempt to assess how informative the interview was. So we're comfortable interviewing someone who was a close friend, but who doesn't know as much. And we're comfortable interviewing somebody who did everyday care for the person who died. And at the end, we, we make a score and we say, what's our best assessment of how well they knew what was going on? And we figured that if we get over 100 of these, then we can start to ask whether the storylines are different when we interview people who didn't know the person who died as well versus those who did. 
but we're kind of open to all. Um, obviously, if you only knew somebody through social media, but you never really talked to them and you never, you only kind of got a fragmented story, that may be less helpful. But sometimes people are really close, even though they only text each other. And even though uh, they only are doing Facebook message, text and Twitter, and yet they know everything. So all that happens is at the end, we ask both of the people who are from the study team to assess where, how, how likely is it that this is a very informative person? And we don't get rid of any data. We'll just ask ourselves later, did we get a different story from people who seemed to know the most? Well said. I want to now close the interview guide and talk a little bit about the emotional aspects of this. Good. Because I think it's important that people really understand that this is something that is accounted for. So rather than begin with the question, rather just ask for your observations on the emotional burdens that take place as you guys are conducting these interviews. Yeah. Um, well, speaking, you know, personally, uh, I feel like, yes, they are, these are heartbreaking interviews to be just blunt. Um, they're really hard to go through sometimes, especially for the interviewer and the participant. Um, I, it's painful and difficult, uh, but I have really noticed that for, I think all of our participants so far, they've said something to the effect of they feel kind of better after doing it. I think there is some sort of catharsis that comes with talking about this in a respectful and blunt way, which we try to do with the interview guide and um, with each interview. Um, and so I feel like for the most part, it seems like people are coming away pleased that they took part in this. Um, and so hopefully we can continue to make that true for all participants. That's certainly a commitment for our team. And it does align with some research that's been done about these types of interviews, which is that when people choose to be in an interview, they usually say, yeah, that was serious for me. That was really serious. But I, I think it was a good thing. Um, that, and that's been studied in other studies of this nature. Yes. Now, many people who have heard of this study have perhaps expressed some hesitation and that they felt they were not prepared or that they would not be capable of completing the interviews. Talk about those who have participated in terms of, you know, their abilities, uh, whether they had a phone access, internet access, uh, whether they had to go to a public facility like a library in order to participate. Tell us a, a few stories about the people and some of the more unique accommodations so that perhaps somebody who is living in a small town and doesn't have stable internet access, probably has never used the Microsoft Teams platform before, but they want to participate. Speak to that individual and let him or her know how they can participate. Yeah. Um, well, if Teams is not an option for you, absolutely. Please know that a phone call is absolutely a great choice. We've had a few people do the, just the phone call. Um, we still use Teams to record it, but that in no way, it doesn't hurt anything at all for it to just be a phone call. Um, I feel like it's probably been about half and half so far. I think we've completed 11 interviews. Probably around five or six have been straight up phone calls and the others have been, you know, joining via teams on their computer. Um, and we haven't had any issues no with either yet. Yeah. So, yeah. Nice. Now there's always the kind of underlying element of trust whenever those who choose to participate join in on the study. 
I know we touched upon this before, Stefan, in previous conversations, but maybe for the listening audience now, if you can elaborate on how trust is built, how it's maintained, and how you've worked specifically with the participants to cultivate a culture of trust. I think that the first part is that in the process of doing a sensitive interview or a sensitive survey, you have to tell people what you're going to do. You have to let the person know that they can bail, stop, say, I'm not really interested in this further, and that there's no judgment. Actually, a big part of trust is no judgment. Uh, I think it's also important that for someone who is doing this interview, that there's payment. Um, that is, if you're going to give an hour or two hours of time uh, to have a conversation, that that needs to be recognized as a loss of your time that you could have used doing something else. And so I think it's $100 for the interview. Is that right? I think there's a card. It's That's... not a lot. It's a token. But it's just showing like, yeah, you have given something of value and that needs to be uh, paid for. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. So I also think that um, it's probably worth underscoring that the people in the study, April, myself, Dr. Varley, Allison Varley, the others, the interviewers, Dr. McCullough, all of us are people who care about this topic and start from the supposition. We start with the view that the people living through the changes in our opioid prescribing culture have not been really credited or heard in a systematic and careful way. And in some ways, you know, not every person who participates knows that about us, but as a outside of my life as a researcher, when I'm acting as an advocate or a public speaker, I'm saying, hey, we need to be listening to the people who are experiencing the impacts of these big policy changes. When somebody does a database query and says, oh, if prescription doses are high, risk is higher, or when prescription doses are reduced, suicide happens. And they say, therefore, you should treat all patients this way. That's what we're saying. No, no, don't, don't jump to the conclusions like that. Don't jump to conclusions without including a full understanding from people who are watching what's happening and who are living what's happening. And in a way, the entire study is based on this idea that the people who are living through and experiencing or observing what our healthcare system is doing and how people are accommodating that, these are incredibly powerful observers. And to say, I ran some statistics, now I know, that's, that's the wrong posture and it is going to foster more distrust um asking questions and asking and listening for answers is part of why you know why we think we're in this is to really learn from people who live things yeah well said april anything you have to add to that um i will just add just on an administrative level um we're here to ensure that you can trust us with your information and with your data. Um, we have two IRBs approving this study. We have two NIH certificates of confidentiality, one for the university and one for the VA. Um, that protects our participants' privacy. It, it prohibits the disclosure of information for legal reasons. Um, and yeah, we're, yeah. Like quite literally, if somebody were yeah. engaged in litigation and there was a subpoena issued, we would hold up these two certificates of federal government certificates and say, we are obligated to fight in court and no one has ever overcome this certificate in prior research. These are meant to say, even a court discovery action cannot get 
the information we collect in this study. That's how seriously privacy is taken. Certainly, and the overall theme of that is by providing information, by sharing the stories, you're not putting the participants or the patients in question in any undue risk or harm. Yeah. Absolutely. And when For someone's those passed away, I just want to say, somebody who's passed away still has an interest. They still have a dignity interest and a respect interest and a potentially a legal interest. And those still have to be respected. That's an obligation for us. Certainly. For those who are listening and heard a few terms like IRB, NIH, Certificate of Confidentiality, mm. would you mind just taking a few moments to just explain what they are and what that means in terms of data security for the study? Yes, definitely. Um, so Internal Review Board, IRB, um, any legitimate research that happens has to be approved ethically by their board. So. Um, this is a VA-funded study, but we're university-affiliated. Um, so some of our work takes place at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, UAB. And so all of the work that happens there is covered by the IRB there. And all of the work that happens at the VA is covered under the VA's IRB. Um, and so that just means that we've told them everything we're going to do and everything we say to people. And they come back and say, yeah, that sounds good. Or if they're like, no, that does not fly. You need to change these things and correct this. Um, then we've taken those steps and corrected it. Um, and for the certificates of confidenti confidentiality, excuse me, um, National Institute of Health, those are just kind of like Dr. Chez was saying from the federal government. And so it kind of umbrella covers the uh, identity of our participants and protects any information that they give us. So your privacy Certainly. is secure. In the remaining time that we have, I'd like to conclude by asking both of you to speak to the audience and explain to them why they should participate. And I think I would like to then add my own personal thoughts on why I believe those listening should participate and encourage others to participate as well. Who should go? I'll, I'll start. Um, so I will say we're in the early stages of completing these interviews still. Like I said, we've done 11. Our hope is to do between 100 and 115. Um, but speaking as someone who is not a healthcare provider, um, I've got to say this experience has been very eye-opening to me already, um, just on the range of different pain experiences and what this journey can be like for people. And um, you know, I'm grateful to our team for doing this work. And I'm very grateful to every single person who's completed a survey and is interested in it and wants to help push it forward. Um, I'll just say, you know, please reach out to us and the contact information that we provide in several places. Um, and then also our study website. If you just want to learn a little more about the study, we would love to hear from you. We would love to, you know, yeah, move forward and everything. So I'll, I'll comment, first of all, if somebody wanted to just ask a question, we have an email that's CSI Opioids, that's all one word, at UABMC, that's University of Alabama at Birmingham Medical Center, .edu. So you could write to us, or you could go to that website, go.uab.edu slash CSI. In terms of, it's, there's app, anybody who participates is offering a service that may help protect people with pain and patients with pain going forward in the future and may help people who are grieving a loss in the present. I think one of the most difficult things about the last 10 years of responding to what's called the opioid crisis has been that certain forms of suffering have been discounted 
or taken off radar are treated as negligible. Uh, and at an emotional and at a moral level, I am profoundly concerned that it has been very easy for policymakers, for insurers, even in the litigation settlements that are playing out now to sort of set aside or ignore what's happening to people with long-term pain and to see whatever happens to them as negligible. And that's despite the fact that there's statistical studies suggesting we should be concerned. And I think when people come forward and provide stories as best they can understand them of what's happening and researchers try to make sense of them, that lends gravity, it lends weight, it makes it a lot harder for the important experiences that people are going through right now to be ignored. And that's why I was saying that if you come forward to talk, it obviously has to be voluntary, it has to be worth your time, but it's kind of a service in the immediate term for other people who are grieving, who yeah. don't, who think that they suffered something that no one talks about and that everyone is ignoring. And if there's suddenly 20 or 50 or 70 people who say, I'm telling a story here, and we're serious about how we collect it, we're not just reporters, then it'll be impossible to ignore. And I think that's a service. I hope that we also derive insights that can change healthcare systems. But in the immediate term, just showing that these lives and these deaths deserve to be taken seriously is a tremendous value that people could bring to the table. Well said. I would just like to conclude by letting the listening audience know that we've spent a lot of time talking about patient narratives and empowering our journey by communicating. And I feel that this study is an excellent opportunity for those patients who feel disenfranchised or silenced or may feel like their loved ones are disenfranchised and silenced to now finally voice your concerns and tell your stories. And so I would listen. I would encourage everyone to listening to please participate in this study and help those who have lost their lives to be remembered in a way that's very meaningful for others to benefit. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you.